0: Today on Something You Should Know, if a fly lands on the food you're about to eat, is it still okay to eat it? Then, how can you better read other people and how do you make yourself more likable?
1: What we found was that certain nonverbal cues over and over again tend to increase likability. For example, we tend to like people who tilt their heads.
0: Also, did you know your brain is incapable of keeping track of more than three things unless they're all the same color? And while most people are pretty honest, it turns out almost all of us
2: are a little dishonest. You know, you could go over the speed limit a little bit. Uh, We can add a few extra receipts to our tax return. And in the same way that the people who deal with us professionally, uh, your plumber, your mechanic, they don't feel okay taking money away
3: from your wallet, but recommending services you don't really need feels much more comfortable. All this today on Something You Should Know.
0: Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. We have so much practical advice you can use in your life today in this episode. You may want to take notes because we are going to talk about honesty or, or more to the point dishonesty how to better read people, and how to present yourself to be more approachable and attractive to other people. And we're going to start today with (laughs) the the situation that I know you've been in where there's this piece of cake or something in front of you, some delicious piece of food, and then a fly lands on it. And now what do you do? If a fly lands on your food, does that mean it is no longer fit for human consumption? Probably not, according to Cameron Webb of the University of Sydney, who lectures on the subject of food hygiene. A single fly landing on your food is unlikely to trigger an illness in anyone who eats it. However, if there are multiple flies, or if a fly has been lingering on your food for an unknown amount of time, well, now you need to be concerned. Flies can carry up to 100 human and animal diseases, as well as a whole host of parasites, and they can deposit all of those things on your food. Interestingly, city flies are more hygienic than country flies. Why? Well, in the city, flies are more likely to spend time on other food, while country flies are more likely to spend time on dead animals and animal waste and things. So a single fly on your food? Probably no big deal. Lots of flies, and you're probably better off eating something else. And that is something you should know. What is it that makes some people more attractive than others? What makes some people more popular than others? And how do you make yourself more interesting and appealing to other people? Could a smile or a tilt of the head really make a difference in what others think of you? All of this is the science of people and the laws of human behavior. And Vanessa Van Edwards is the professor on this. Vanessa has been studying people and studying what other people have been studying about people. And she's put it in a book called Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So knowing what you know about human behavior and human interaction Tell me something that will help me understand or connect with people or something that will surprise me about how people communicate and connect.
1: Yeah. So the first thing that we found very quickly is that um, you think it's about attractiveness. And attractiveness helps, certainly. But actually, that's not the most important factor when we're trying to judge someone on success or effectiveness or even likability. And what we found was that certain nonverbal cues over and over again tend to increase likability. For example, we tend to like people who tilt their heads. Now, this was something that came up in the research. It also came up in our research that people in a Twitter profile picture or LinkedIn profile picture who just had a slight little head tilt people liked it. And I went, why? Why is this the case? Well, it turns out that when as humans, we're trying to hear something, like if I say, hey, do you hear that? Usually we t- tilt our head up to expose our ear, just helps us hear more. And so we think of people who are tilting their heads as more empathetic, as better listeners, um, as uh, pro- possibly warmer. And those are the kind of people that we like to be around. So that was a really interesting way that like, wow, that's something that's a universal nonverbal that we tend to uh, use that as an indicator in just a profile picture.
0: So just in, in list form, what are the kinds of things can you understand about people? Things like what approachability, likability, uh, what, what are the things, just give me like a, a short list of things that, that are available to you if you know this stuff.
1: Yeah, I would say that there's actually three big ones, the three buckets. Um, One is warmth, so likability, friendliness, approachability. The second is competence, so um, power, intelligence, uh, capability, effectiveness. And the last one is charisma. And actually, um, Harvard business researchers found that charisma is kind of a blend of warmth and competence. So those are kind of the three buckets that we really focus on in our courses, in our books, in our labs.
0: So, talk about charisma then what is what is it? How do you identify it and 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 probably more importantly, how do you project it
1: yeah i've been fascinated by charisma ever since i was young because I never had it. So, um, I was, you know, that, that real, I joke, I'm a recovering awkward person. And, um, I was that kid in school who just like watched the popular kids across the cafeteria and was in awe of them. And so I think that when I got into college and I started doing my own research and taking psychology classes, I was really obsessed with this idea of charisma, popularity. What is it? And so um, the very first thing I learned was that this Harvard Business School, Harvard Business School research study found that um, we're always judging some people on their warmth and competence factors. And you can have just warmth. You can be very friendly, very likable. But if you only have warmth, you're often not taken seriously. Uh, people forget your name more often. Um, people might interrupt you in meetings. Now, you could also have just competence, and competence is okay, too, but if you just have that without the warmth, people see you as powerful, capable, but maybe intimidating or hard to talk to. And so that charisma is actually the perfect blend of being both approachable and credible, and we can learn that. Um, yes, people are born with it. There are people who naturally have very high levels of both, but luckily, there are both nonverbal and verbal signals or social signals of warmth and competence that you can adopt and learn, and that helps increase that charisma factor.
0: What I'm surprised not to hear in that description is uh, self confidence. Because when I think back of high in high school of the popular kids, that's something they had that I didn't have. They they seemed to carry themselves like they were on top of the world. They knew what they were they knew what they were doing, and they kind of didn't really care what you thought. They had that that. I don't know. I I guess it's charisma. It's that je ne sais quoi. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it sure looks cool.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned confidence, so I tend to, and this is this is a personal choice. And you know, it's interesting you bring it up. I don't use the word confidence only because I feel like culturally we've abused it. (laughs) We have over. It's almost like we don't hear it anymore. Like if I were to say um, I teach a course on confidence, people would be like. Like people right. would not be very fit. Yeah. Right. If I was like, I teach a course on charisma, people would be like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, now, charisma and confidence are very close. And I would actually say that the bridge between the two is comfort. So think about it this way. If you are very competent, so competence is not faking it. Competence is actually doing things, talking about things, acting in a way that you are, you feel powerful and capable and effective. That brings a certain level of comfort. So, for example, I am not charismatic in a math class. I never will be. I'm not competent in that subject. I can barely do tips at the end of a dinner. However, I'm a little bit more charismatic in, say, a science class or an English class, because those are my those are my rock star subjects. So it's you cannot always have charisma. it's It can be learned, but there's a very fine line between faking it and faking competence, which usually doesn't work, and finding the topics and the things that you actually feel competent about and then dialing the comp, the charisma up on that level. So I think that comfort brings confidence if that makes sense. Well,
0: and I think that's a really important point that all of this is somewhat seemingly situational that like you say you can you can feel one way in one room and go to the next room with other people and feel completely different.
1: Yeah, that's I think the biggest problem that we face with teaching people skills or soft skills. You know, my 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 career is teaching soft skills and I love soft skills. I think you can teach soft skills like hard skills. And the biggest problem that I face is that people have been taught it's once you learn it, it's kind of like you're done, right? Like you learn how to be charismatic and you're charismatic forever. And that just that just isn't the case. It's also impossible to be highly charismatic, or we, even, we can even use a different word, highly influential, highly impactful, even um, trying to be an extrovert if you're not one, in situations that make you highly uncomfortable. And so I, the one thing that I teach is um, the idea of breaking down context into three different categories, survive, neutral, and thrive. Because, for example, let's say that someone really, really hates going to loud bars. Like, that's just like, oh, it's out of their comfort zone. It's almost impossible for them to be very charismatic in that zone. So I would say to them, do not start there. Don't even go there second. Let's go to some of the neutral areas, some of the areas you're already pretty comfortable in, and let's dial up in those areas. So not all contexts are created equal.
0: Since you know all this stuff, do you, when you meet somebody, do you go through like a checklist and size them up? And if so, (laughs) what is that checklist?
1: You know, I wish I could say no, but I think the answer is is yes. Um, And this is only because it does not come naturally to me. Uh, Speed reading people is a skill that I have developed out of survival. I had a childhood where I had a lot of people who unfortunately, adults who lied to me. And um, I really had to learn to get good at reading people to protect myself. And so I developed a sort of system, and this has taken years to develop, that's what I actually teach in the book, for speed reading people. And so what I'm checking off is three different things. And you'll notice I like the rule of three. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Helps me remember. Uh, The first one is their five personality traits. So that's the first thing I'm trying to figure out. It's the outer layer of what I call their matrix. I think everyone has Uh, three basic layers. And so the outer layer is their personality. So I try to figure out their five personality traits. And I literally have matrices for every person in my life. Almost all my students have matrices for all the the people in their life. Uh, The second layer is uh, their appreciation language or their love language based on Dr. Gary Chapman's research, uh, the five love languages. And uh, the middle inner layer is uh, their primary resource, which is uh, research based on um, uh, FOA and his associates on what is someone's primary need. So, there's six resources, and I'm trying to find out what is their primary resource.
0: And w- when you say their primary need, uh, what might those be?
1: like, for example? Yeah. um so for example, uh, FOA argues it's kind of this is kind of like the updated version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs if you're familiar with that. Uh-huh. this is kind of the the newer uh, version of that. It's basically that we all need all six resource categories, but we tend to favor one that we have trouble with. It could be one that we didn't get a lot of as a child. It could be one that just fulfills us the most. And so for example, one of them is information. So these are people who are like know-it-alls, people who are always Googling things, uh, people who always wanna be in the know. Um, They tend to be gossipers sometimes. Um, That would be one category. So for them, giving them information is much more valuable than say, giving them status. So another one would be status. So status is praise, responsibility, larger titles, um, so at work with colleagues this is really helpful because if you are working with someone, you know that their value resource is status for them, praise and public praise and public responsibility and a new brand new shiny title that is far more of an incentive than um, goods like a gift or a gift card. Um, so looking at all the different resources helps you appeal to people, understand their motivations. Um, and it's greatly changed my relationships, both professionally and socially.
0: Vanessa Van Edwards is my guest today on Something You Should Know, and she is the author of the book Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People. Listen, if you're starting a new business or a new project, you have to have a website. But it's more than that. It has to be a great website. And sure, you could have your neighbor's cousin's nephew build your website, but why when there's Squarespace? With Squarespace, you build your website using one of their beautiful templates designed by world-class web designers. Then you easily and quickly customize it to your exact needs. We did this with a website for a new podcast that we're working on, and the whole process was so easy and it came out looking... perfect. And if you're selling products or services on your site... Squarespace has all the e-commerce functionality built right in, so you can start selling right away. You get free web hosting, there's never anything to upgrade, and their award-winning customer service is right there 24-7 whenever you need it. Look, you need a website, and you can either do it the easy way or the hard way. Just take a moment and check out Squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SOMETHING to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, and use the offer code SOMETHING. So, Carolyn, tell me how, because I would love to know this, how to work a room. When you walk into a room full of people, what is the best way to become part of that and not feel like you should just hang out by the wall and, you know, Mm. watch, watch the clock?
1: Yeah, so we uh, did a really fun study on uh, networking where we went to um, uh, networking events all over Portland, Oregon. I'm in Portland, Oregon. And we filmed, we had a camera in each corner of the room, we filmed networkers, and we followed them and we tracked them. We also gave them pre-surveys and post-surveys. We were looking for super connectors. We were looking for the people who um, not only enjoyed themselves the most, because that's important, we want we wanted people who liked it, but also who got the most contacts, business cards, and had the most robust and active LinkedIn networks. And we found that there was very, very specific patterns, that those super connectors worked a room very specifically. Um, first thing is that they avoided the very first entrance area. In my book, I call this the start zone. Um, they went right through that. Um, the worst networkers tended to hover in the start zone. The start zone is like right as you enter a room, right near the coat check, uh, uh, hovering kind of right at the entrance that seemed to be a rookie mistake and super connectors blasted right through it. They went right for, and this, I call this a sweet spot. Um, they went right for the first sweet spot, which is right as people exit the bar. So it seems to be that, first of all, waiting in line for the bar is a great way to start up conversation with someone because you're sitting next to each other and you can say, hey, what are you getting to drink? And then right as people exit the bar, they're pretty desperate for someone to talk to. And so um, standing in that place, you kind of become a social savior. So they would say, hey, you know, welcome to the event. What'd you get? And it was the easiest kind of startup conversation as opposed to like trying to approach someone randomly across the room. And they just racked in those business cards and, and clearly had the best time. Now, that could be because they were standing at the bar. You know, that could have been why they had such a good time, but uh, we saw this over and over again. So I always say avoid the start zone, um, avoid the side zone. So bathrooms, um, hovering around the food. You would think hovering around the food is a good idea. What we found was it produced high-quantity, low-quality conversations. Why? When people have their food, they're happy to chit chat with you while they're getting their food. When they get their food, they want to eat. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they often then will say, "Okay, great talking to you. I'm going to go sit down and eat this." And they're also only half with you because half their brain is eating. Um, so that's all another rookie mistake is the side zone.
0: That's really interesting because I think most people approach a room and start looking. Well, I don't know what they look. I don't know what I look at. I, I, I'm not. I feel like I go into a room of people totally blind like I'm hoping to find something but I don't even know what I'm hoping to find
1: oh you know that's actually that's actually the problem so when we talk about confidence or we don't talk about confidence we don't say that word but actually um, I one of the things I say in my courses over and over again is um, this is about being purposeful not confident so if you walk into a room and you don't know what to do like you have no plan because you walk into a room and you're like I guess I'll get a drink I guess I'll go to the bathroom oh that person looks kind of interesting. That lack of purpose, is it's very hard to be confident. So actually, I think purpose, like knowing I'm checking in, I'm turning in my coat, I'm not standing in the start zone, I'm getting my food, I'm getting my drink, but I'm not standing in the food zone, and then I'm going to go plant myself once I'm ready at that spot, it gives you a kind of confidence because you are so purposeful with what you are doing.
0: Can people tell, do you think, that if you walk into a room and you feel kind of lonely and desperate and you don't know what to do? Can people consciously or unconsciously sense that and and react to that, and and if so, how?
1: I I think yes, and I, the reason why I kind of couch that without a definitive answer is because we really don't know that je ne sais quoi exactly. Like sometimes you hear women say, oh, or men or women say, you know, I can I can smell the desperation on them, mm-hmm. and you know, I think there's some truth to that. I don't know how, I don't know why. Or, you know, they they have also found that our emotions are contagious. In my TED Talk, that was my whole theme was that we're very, very contagious, but we don't know exactly how or why. So I say I think so, but I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if that's from facial expressions. I don't know if it's from from pheromones. I don't know if it's from body language cues, but I think that somehow we do know. We we are more like herds than we like to believe. We like to think that we're, you know, individuals alone in the storm. I think a lot of the time we engage in a lot of herd behavior subconsciously we don't realize
0: once people are in that room though and they make that connection and start to talk a lot of people don't know what to say they, they hate small talk they don't know how to make small talk and they don't know what to talk about
1: yeah i think um so i love using context cues i think that that's the easiest way to come up with things come up with something to say context cues are the best because you're always in a context of some kind. <laughs> you know, you're never without one. Um, and so this is using cues in your environment to easily bridge conversation. So it could be, you know, hey, what would you get at the bar? What are you drinking? That drink looks interesting. It could be, oh, did you try those amazing wings? Oh, they were so much better than I thought. It could be, uh, hey, have you been to this gorgeous restaurant before? It uh, could be, hey, how do you know the host? What brings you here? There's always context, and context is always safe because you already share it. With a stranger, you are already sharing the context. And so to bring it up, to talk about it, it is easy because it's right in front of you. And also it feels like a safe topic. So it's a really easy bridge.
0: Is there a way to tell when you look at someone whether, and I guess this is somewhat subjective, but how approachable they are? And is there a way to project that you're approachable? And if so, (laughs) what a long question this is. And if so, is there a difference whether it's romantic or not?
1: I, yes. The answer is yes. The a long answer. But I would say that the, the what you should focus on first is being purposeful. We like people who know what they're doing. We like to talk to people who know what they're doing. We like to talk to people who like where they are. So everything we've talked about so far actually helps you with that approachability. One, being in contexts that you thrive in, so places you're already comfortable. Two, talking about topics or doing things where you feel competent. Um, three, being purposeful with your actions, uh, knowing where you are and who you're trying to talk to, and then having really, really easy, easy bridge topics at the ready, um, that we pick up on, we want easy, right? We, in social interactions, we're searching the room for someone who's going to be fun, who's going to be a really good conversation. So if you have those four things going, that's, that's the right start.
0: Any, anything we haven't talked about that you think is really important that people understand about this, that, that, that would, would really help.
1: Um, I always like to end on the idea that I don't think you have to fake it till you make it. Um, I know that that's a really popular um, thing right now that people talk about. And I, I think that faking it till you make it is is OK. But I'd much rather you find things you're already good at and dial that up as opposed to trying things you're not so good at and trying to fake it. So I would say do what you're really good at, even if it seems like it's really small, and try to just maximize that as much as possible.
0: But, but when you have to go to places where you're not comfortable, you don't feel like you belong, what do you do then? Sometimes you, you're forced into situations that are out of your comfort zone.
1: Again, I would try to find the things that work for you. So if you have to go to a place that you really don't like, um, eliminate as much faking it as you make it and as you can. So like finding topics that you really like and having those at the ready to go, having stories that you love to share ready to go, um, making sure that you get there early because it'll be a little bit quieter or get there late so it'll be a little bit easier. I'm um, trying to minimize all the opportunities in that kind of forced opportunity that will make you fake it.
0: Well, even though you don't like using the word confidence, I think knowing this stuff, knowing what you just said, knowing what's in your book can give people confidence, the, the ability or the willingness to to go out and interact and feel more like they know what they're doing. Uh, Vanessa Van Edwards has been my guest. Uh, The book is called Captivate the Science of Succeeding with People. There is a link to it in the show notes. Thanks, Vanessa.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for, for giving me the space and the time, and thanks everyone for listening.
0: I bet you like to think that you are a pretty honest person. Most of us think that. But when you really think about it, I bet you there might be a few things that you fudge on. Maybe on your taxes, or or maybe you tell a little white lie so you don't have to go into work today. And, or maybe not. Maybe you are a very, very honest person. But what's interesting about dishonesty to me is that we tend to be dishonest, but just a little bit. We might fudge a few deductions on our taxes, but why not fudge a lot of deductions? Why not Just not file your taxes. Somehow we rationalize that a little dishonesty is probably okay. Dan Ariely is somebody who has really explored dishonesty. Dan is a professor at Duke University and author of several books, one of which is The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. So, Dan, since you're the one who's researched this, what is dishonesty? I mean, how how do you
2: define it? So I do experiments with people, and uh, so for me, the definition of dishonesty is really very simple. It's whatever I can measure in my experiments. So my basic experiment is the following. I take a sheet of paper with 20 simple math problems, and I ask people to solve as many as they can in five minutes. At the end of the five minutes, I ask them to take the sheet of paper, count how many questions they got correctly, and go to the back of the room and shred that piece of paper. After that, they come to the front of the room and they tell me that they solve on average, let's say, six questions, and I pay them $6. What the people in the experiment don't know is that I played with a shredder. So the shredder only shreds the sides of the page, but not the main body of the page. And now I can jump inside the shredder, and I can find out how many questions they really solve correctly. And what I find is that on average people solve four, problems and report to be six. So for me, this gap between what people actually do and what they report is the main measurement of dishonesty. And we do lots of experiments like that, and we try to change all kinds of things about the environment, about who they cheat, about how they think about themselves, Uh, do they look at the Bible when they do it, and so on. And we try to see what kind of things
3: changes the magnitude of the gap between what people actually do and what they report. Well, it's interesting in that example that if people think that they're shredding the paper and you'll never know,
0: why don't they say they answered all 20?
2: That's a fantastic question. And what's interesting is that something stops people. And, you know, I mostly focus in the book about the dark side of dishonesty, mostly about how people uh, cheat. But it's true that people don't cheat enough, right? If a rational economist would look at our experiments, I would say people should cheat all the way turns out people don't cheat all the way. And you can think about it for yourself. I mean, uh, just just today, you probably had lots of opportunities to take some money from people. Uh, You probably had opportunities to, somebody left their wallet by their desk. There were probably things at the station. There are all kinds of opportunities for us to take money away from people, and nevertheless, we don't take it. And what's interesting is that we don't think about the cost-benefit analysis. What stops us, the vast, vast majority of us, from being immoral and dishonest is not the fear of being caught. It's our internal gauge. And I think this is both kind of the irrational part on one hand, but also the wonderful part about human nature is that we do have this wonderful tendency to be honest, only that it's not perfectly
3: <laughs> controlling our behavior. And it does leave some room for a fudge factor that gets us to be slightly dishonest. So we're sort of honest, but it's okay to be dishonest a little bit. We, we to ourselves that as long as we're slightly
2: dishonest, we're okay. You, know, you, could, you could go over the speed limit a little bit. Uh, we can add a few extra receipts to our uh, tax return. We feel okay if we have an insurance claim to add a few things here and there. And in the same way that the people who deal with us professionally, or your plumber, your mechanic, your physician, your dentist, they don't feel okay taking money away from your wallet, but recommending um, services you don't really need feels much more comfortable. To them, So there is this level of dishonesty that is kind of, we, we can kind of turn a slightly blind eye and still think of ourselves as
3: doing God's good work. <laughs> I love that. And in all your work that you do, do you ever find people who are just flat out honest as the day is long?
2: So this is actually a very tough, for us it's very tough for us to do experimentally. So in every experiment, we find some people who don't cheat. So in this book, I describe experiments about, from about 30,000 people. And from these 30,000 people, we found 12 who are big cheaters, and I lost about $150 to them, right? 12 big cheaters lost $150 to them. And we found about 18,000 little cheaters, and I lost about $32,000, to them now, we do have some people who don 't cheat, and you can ask uh, who who are those who are those people and the reality is we don 't know, and in particular, we don 't know if it 's the same people time after time, so in every particular experiment, we find that some people don 't cheat, but what we don 't know is it 's people who would never cheat and you know you could say, maybe those are the people who just came back from church, or those are people who just thought about the Ten Commandments or people who just did something else. That's prime them to be more honest at the moment, or it could be somebody like Mother Teresa that never uh, cheats and lies, we don't know. That's kind of something good to consider in the next phases of the studies.
0: When people cheat th- in the way you describe, when the doctor orders that extra test, what is he telling himself,
3: that it's, he's really doing the right thing, or, hey, I can get a little extra money this way out of this guy? I think it's much more about telling ourselves that we're doing the right
2: thing. You know, when we if you're a fan of some sports team, are you a fan of a sports team of some sort? Oh sure. Okay, so when you go to a game and you see the referee calling a call against your team, it's very hard for you to see things in an objective way. It's very hard for you to not think the referee is evil, vicious, stupid, right? Something, something about the referee is wrong because your motivation is, is coloring your view of the world. Your desire to see your team win is coloring your view of the world. Now imagine that it's not a sports team that you care about, but it's your financial well-being. You get to get, earn more money if you see reality this way to another way. Don't you think that now you would be able to see reality in a slightly biased way and with it uh, get more money? And that's basically what, what we see. And this, by the way, is very important because if we think that people who are dishonest are bad people, then we can just kind of categorize the world into two parts, the good people and bad people. And as long as we don't deal with bad people, everything is fine. But what we find is that it's not about good people and bad people. It's about good people being in bad conflicts of interest and therefore having a biased view of the world, view that eventually turns out to be negative.
0: So Dan, what do we do with this? What do we we know that everybody probably or most everybody probably
3: fudges a little bit, they're a little bit dishonest, but so what? N- knowing that, what do we do? So there's a few things to do with it on on multiple levels. First of all, we
2: should think to ourselves what are we fudging uh, perhaps without thinking too carefully. The next thing is when we go to our financial advisor, doctor, dentist, and so on, we should realize that even if they're good people and even if they have kids in the same school as we are and with the same PTA and so on, if they have a biased incentive, they might not be able to give us the right recommendations. And I should tell you that this is kind of a tremendous burden. It's a tremendous burden to go to a a mechanic, a doctor, and so on, and to feel that they might have a biased incentive and you need to protect yourself. But the truth is, we should be aware of this and we should try to protect ourselves. And then it means for companies. Companies should try and figure out what are the gray zones that people should, could overinterpret and overstep and how they should limit it. And finally, it's about the government. You know, in government regulations, we often think that as long as there's a big punishment at the end, people would behave well because they would be fearful of the punishment. But in all of my research, in all of my discussions with big cheaters, uh, nobody thinks about the long-term ramification and nobody thinks about the punishment. So it means that lots of these attempts are basically misplaced. And because of that, we're getting much more dishonesty in the
3: marketplace and in society than we think, uh, we, than, we, than we plan to. So when these people that do big dishonest things get caught and say they're sorry, what they're really sorry is they got caught. You know, of course, they're sorry that they got that they got caught. But I think that, and this is from my discussion with with dishonest people. You know, when you, um,
2: when you look at the long sequence of people who've been dishonest, you said to yourself, "I can't imagine doing all of that." But in most cases, they didn't plan on all of that. Long sequence of events. In most of those cases, they, they took one step at a time. And they took one little step that at that moment they could rationalize and that moment they could feel good about themselves. And then the next step was there. And then the next step was there and so on. And if you think about it step by step, it's not justifying it, but it's much more understandable. And I think many more of us could see ourselves, if
3: we, if we <laughs> admitted it, taking one step at a time and quickly justifying what we have done. Do you find that people, the more they do it, the more they do it, the more it's a slippery slope? It is. It is absolutely a slippery slope. And part of the reason for the slippery slope is that uh, once rationalization
2: kicks in, you start basically explaining why this is actually okay. And now the slippery slope becomes larger and larger. And then at some point, many of the people I've talked to get to a situation where it's too late. They can't go back. Uh, It's very hard to change things. And at that point, they just try to protect their tracks with the hope that nothing bad would happen. And here, too, we've done some experiments And the experiments have been something like uh, the Catholic Confession or the Jewish Day of Atonement. When we ask the question of what happens when there's a slippery slope and people start cheating all the time, wouldn't it be the case that unless we give them an opportunity for a, a new page and open a blank slate, wouldn't that allow them to restart again? And that's actually what we find. We find that a slippery slope is incredibly tempting. People get to it. And if we don't offer them a way out, They just keep on cheating. But if we stop the situation and we offer people a chance for a new beginning, a chance for an open uh, new page, they often take it and start behaving well. And I think this is actually an interesting lesson to take from religion. I think religion has basically figured out the importance of uh, new pages, and we need to think about how do we implement stuff like this in regular society. But don't you think
0: that human beings are also um, interested in fairness and justice, and if somebody gets caught doing something wrong, it isn't about giving them a clean start,
3: it's about making them pay for what they did wrong.
2: Yeah, uh, retribution is clearly important.
3: right? Uh, for some crimes, we want people to pay because we want
2: to feel that justice has been done and we feel uh, angered and we want, we want a sense of, of justice. And... I'm not saying that this is a bad thing to have, but the reason we punish people is often is not just because of sense of justice, it's also because we want to deter other people from doing the same thing. And I think that aspect is just not, there's no evidence for that. Um, There was a recent study that looked at the death penalty asking whether the death penalty um, reduces uh, crimes, you know, mostly the crimes that you get for the death penalty, uh, crimes of passion and uh, murder and so on. And there's no evidence for that. Now, the studies are not very good because it's hard to do the study well, but even something like the death penalty doesn't seem to decrease uh, um, crime. And now ask yourself, if the death penalty was kind of a big uh, punishment, right? You can't get bigger than that. doesn't seem to have a big effect. What are the odds that small things like You know, nine years in prison or ten years in prison are going to deter people from being uh, committing crime. So, my my sense, if you look at the financial crisis, for example, if you look at Wall Street or insider trading is that we take good people, we tempt them to be dishonest, and then we create at the back end very severe punishment. or so, you know, maybe not so severe, but somewhat severe punishment. And I think this is just not something that is going to influence behavior. Instead, I think we, tried, we need to try to prevent the misbehavior at the moment. We need to decrease uh, conflicts of interest. We need to decrease the temptation of of misbehaving rather than trying to
3: uh, punish people at the end and hope that this would uh, have an effect. But what about you know? We hear. I remember the the uh, the publicity about a case of in Indonesia
0: where they you know publicly flog people for doing things. And boy, that's a that's a very clean country,
3: and people don't screw around. Uh, you know, we can, I I don't know when you've been last in Indonesia. I haven't been there actually for quite a while. Um,
2: but the, the results I think don't show up, and I haven't seen the results about Indonesia. The results don't show up that uh, prison sentences are are deterring anybody. You know, look at something as simple as the uh, downloading illegal content on the web, um, mp3s, uh, music, and so on. Uh, there have been a few really big cases in which people paid a ton of money and uh, had all kinds of uh, costs to pay, and nobody, nobody that I know of uh, from my students uh, is, cares about that. Right? It's just not something we think about. Oh, think about other things. You know, people... This is not in the domain of dishonesty, but lots of people text and drive, uh, lots of people overeat, uh, undersave. save uh, All of those behaviors are really about not thinking long-term. Uh, human beings were just not designed to think long-term and small probabilities, right? So if you take people who text and drive, for example, which is the majority of people, uh, and you say to yourself, those people don't seem to be thinking uh, long-term. They think about the immediate gratification of the phone vibrating. What are the odds that the same people would think about
3: small probability of being caught down the line? I think it's just not uh, going to happen. This is one of those topics that's really interesting to talk about, but <laughs> but
0: maybe not too much for fear of what you'll find out about yourself. Dan Ariely has been my guest. He's a professor at Duke University and author of the book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. There's a link to his book in the show notes for this episode of the program. Thanks, Dan. Did you know it is basically impossible for you to keep track of more than three items at the same time unless those items are the same color? So, for example, when you watch a football game, the common color of the uniforms allows you to overcome that limitation because you see the team as a single set. Team sports would be incredibly difficult to watch if it weren't for the colors of the uniforms. According to a study at John Hopkins University, the ability to only keep track of three items at a time is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. Almost everyone has it, and the only way to override that limitation is with color coding. This principle works in everyday life. For example, if you wanted to take seven kids to the zoo by yourself, it would be tough to keep track of them all. But if they all wore the same color shirt, that would make it much easier. In general, if you want to keep track of multiple things or people, make them the same color. And that is something you should know. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll have another program for you in just a few days.